I used to value numbness. And for a long time now, I've switched that to valuing clarity over all else. March 18th, uh, 2018 was the last time I woke up with a hangover. And the day before I had had way too much Sauvignon Blanc beside the pool at a girlfriend's house. We have children. I had driven home with my kids in the car. And to me, that was just like crossing so many lines. As a child of an alcoholic father that I swore I would never. And I just, I was just so disappointed in myself. And I, you know, I basically got fed up with my own excuses. I was spending a lot of energy trying to fit some external ideal or just self-imposed idea of what should be going on. You know, it's very cliche, but so true. You have to put on your own mask first and prioritize taking care of yourself in order to show up as the kind of parent that you want to show up. Hey, it's Michael, and this is the Kintsugi Podcast. I'll be back in a minute with this week's conversation about resilience. But first, if you wish to create a better life and have a better career, then please visit michaelobrienshift.com and download your free workbook on how to create a better life. In it, you'll discover ways to find more energy for the things and the people who matter most to you so you can create a better tomorrow. Hey there, it's Michael. Welcome to the Kintsugi Podcast and another conversation about resilience. This week, we have someone special. I met her several months ago at the Plant Power Way retreat in Tuscany, Italy. Yes, if you're wondering, it was divine. I still dream about the food and ever so grateful for all the like-hearted humans I met, including this week's guest. When I first met her, I knew there was something about her right away. It was her energy, but more importantly, it was her realness. She was real about where she felt confident, where she felt vulnerable. And the more I got to know her, the more I loved the ripple she's putting into the world. She's a partner, a mom of two boys, a yogi, a chef, a difference maker, and helping women all around the world live in harmony and in holistic wellness. During this week's conversation, we talk about resilience, of course. We talk about motherhood, her relationship with alcohol, and how to live with more harmony. So if you're ready, get comfortable, take a healthy breath in and a slow releasing breath out, and listen to this week's conversation with Megan Swan. Hey, Megan, how you doing? I'm great. How are you? I'm doing great. It's a beautiful day. The sun's out. So as we get to know you, of course, we know each other, but people listening don't fully know you yet. I always love to start off a conversation with this question. What's one good thing that's happened before this moment to you today? Mm. Well, my husband and I have this new practice where instead of just the like quick kiss, like, see you later. We're doing like a six second 
real romantic kiss like you know you tend to do at the beginning of 12 years <laughs> and yeah it was really nice so I'm still sitting with that good vibe that's cool yeah six seconds of juicy kissing yeah that's actually a long that's a long kiss yeah it's not totally making out a snog as they say in the UK <laughs> a bit of a snog yeah it's, that's a good healthy or maybe a snog is more than that let me back that up <laughs> I'm not sure of my UKisms. <laughs> <laughs> it's certainly not a transactional kiss. Exactly. That's a good description of the sort of thing that you kind of default to after a decade. Yeah, after a decade. We're going on close to 30 years. So we've had a couple pecks, like, you know, like transactional kisses. But luckily, <laughs> you know, we've been together for a long time. So we've had some of those good long kisses. So we love good, like, couple origin stories. So again, as we get to know you further, like what was the beginning of your relationship with your husband? How did you meet your husband? Yeah, well, I mean, it's a good story. I actually just finished writing the first draft of my book, which is largely the story in much more depth. But the short version is at the age of 30, I was not finding the career traction that I wanted. I thought I wanted to sort of be in the upper echelons of non-for-profits headquartered out of Toronto. And I had relatively recently read Eat, Pray, Love, or maybe I was on like the second or third time reading it. I was, you know, really obsessed with the book at the time and a particular paragraph that I had written in a journal. And long story short, I just decided at 30 to go on my own Eat, Pray, Love. I won't get into the background of like why it seemed like a good option at the time. Uh, there was other factors, but I just for sure seemed like at 30, if I didn't do it, then I would probably not do it. So my plan, loose plan, was to go to Mexico for a year because relatively recently before I'd made this decision, I had been invited to join my mom and her husband for a week. And so I really just felt this sort of kinetic energy to Mexico. That had been my first experience. And, and I felt like it was, you know, exotic, but not that far away. And so, yeah, my plan was I, I quickly got, you know, it's relatively easy to get your teach English certificate if you have a, a, a university degree. So it's like a 30 day. So I got that. I'd recently completed my level two as a yoga teacher. So I'm like between yoga and teaching English, I'm going to travel Mexico a year, Bali a year, and then, you know, see where the universe takes me was the, the loose plan. And yeah, long story short, I'm, I'm still here. Uh, my first stop almost yeah, 14 years later. And my husband was one of my private English students for several months before we had this kind of cute, awkward conversation where we realized that there was, you know, interest to, to see each other outside the teacher-student arrangement. We started dating and stopped having classes, official ones anyway. And yeah, that's how we met. So he was my, my English student. Wow, that's a cool story. So that would have been the love of E Pray Love, Mexico. Yeah. So one working title of the book was Love, Drink, Forgive. <laughs> 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 it's now potentially the name of a chapter, but yeah, arguably I'm still, I'd say I'm 80% fluent in Spanish. I still very much enjoy Mexican food on a daily basis. And then, yeah, love. All right. I like that. If you put your profession aside, which we're going to get into later on in the conversation. So if you put the job 
aside, how would you describe yourself? Well, I've always been a wanderer, a traveler. I've always loved, you know, sort of led with curiosity and interest in diversity and, you know, meeting new things, new places, new foods. And yeah, I've always been someone who likes a good amount of adventure. So sort of in the similar category, but I've always liked, you know, hiking up mountains and uh, relatively extreme skiing, although it's been a decade since I've done that. So I have this thing of like liking sort of more solo sports, adventure, travel, and then in the more recent decades of my four and a half decades on earth, much more spiritual grounded interests. And I think one theme is I've always been uh, an educator, sometimes in scenarios where, you know, people maybe aren't asking for my... my expertise or my opinion on something. I've, you know, honed that over the years where I wait to be invited. But uh, I always loved encouraging other people to be curious and, yeah, inform others. I love that. A little wandering and wondering spirit. Mm, Yes. As you travel. I love that. All right. So you're known for spontaneous dance parties, at least rumor has it. So What's one song that when you hear it, it makes you want to dance? Oh, so hard to pick just one song. I know. Hard question. This morning on on this this call I had, the song that was played was Heaven is a Place on Earth. I believe, I want to say Belinda Carlisle. Yeah, that's a Belinda Carlisle (laughs) post-Go-Go's. So, I mean, that takes me back to uh, being a teenager. And yeah, it's a good song. That is a good song. The Go-Go's, I don't think, get enough credit. And Belinda's solo career, pretty good. She had some really good hits. I think now she's living in southern France doing her thing. Good call. So that's a good song. When I hear that song, I turn it up. I do a lot of car dancing. So if you happen to stop next to me at a stoplight and you see someone looking like they're having a seizure, it's just me dancing. (laughs) That's all that is. And I'm singing at the top of my lungs. So let's get into a little resilience. That's sort of the theme here at Kintsugi. So with Kintsugi, we have pottery that breaks and it's put back together and leaves this beautiful scar line. So it's perfectly imperfect. So a question I always love to ask, if you can go back to when you were younger, it could be any time. It could be teenage years, in your 20s. What was your relationship like with perfectionism? Well, I'd say it was always very present, like an ideal where I consistently felt like I was not quite meeting it. And so I think that wears on one over time. And it's a relatively common thing, particularly as women. But I I was also raised in a family where, you know, like education and high grades, um, sort of being accomplished in the more traditional measurements was front and center. So I wasn't quite a straight A student, but I was pretty good and and sort of held or felt that I was, you know, meeting the perfection goal, if you will, a little bit more in the academic sense than anywhere else in my life. Yeah. Trying to be a good student. I'm not sure if like being a good girl was also part of that. Well, I was going to say, I don't know how much you want me to, to go into this, but I definitely previous to 16, 17 years old was hitting like that bar quite high as well. I was very straight edge, well-behaved, 
I was definitely the good girl until I like swung the, the opposite side of the pendulum. <laughs> You're like, enough of this, like enough of this good girl stuff. Besides being all that you are, a, a wanderer and wonder wife, you're also a mom. And I know, love to talk a little bit more about that because it might be the hardest job out there as far as like stepping into motherhood. And I know you work now professionally, you, you work with a lot of women, professional women, entrepreneurial women, but also moms. And I would love for you to share just that experience and sort of the lessons you've learned as a mom. I know a lot of the moms I also work with, they have fallen down plenty of times, you know, sort of speaking in terms of this concept of resilience, some really hard, maybe sometimes painful lessons. But I I wanted you to share a little bit more about your experience as a mom and some of the things that you've gained from it. Yeah, well, I mean, just kind of starting with general lessons or reflections over, I've I've been a mom now a little bit over a decade. I have two boys, they're turning nine and 11 in December. And yeah, I think what comes up first of all is I think it's way easier to lean into a concept of harmony than balance because I feel like in motherhood, there's not a lot of balance that's ever happening, but in resisting it, I I felt like I, at least in the past, I, let's not say wasted, but you know, I was spending a lot of energy trying to maybe back to perfectionism, fit some external ideal or just self-imposed idea of what should be going on and not leaning so much into this reality that there are seasons for everything, particularly, you know, there's phases of when your children are certain ages and just sort of allowing and accepting more that, okay, I'm in this phase. I guess when you're in it, the problem is it's hard to see that it's going to shift and it can get really exhausting not being able to see the light at the end of the tunnel. So yeah, I think one thing that really comes to mind is clear boundaries and knowing, you know, it's very cliche, but so true. You know, you have to put on your own mask first and and prioritize taking care of yourself in order to show up as the kind of parent that you want to show up, however you're defining that. And that was one of the earliest catalysts for me in terms of, well, I mean, the first you know, I always say yoga was my gateway drug to wellness. <laughs> that was kind of like a decade before motherhood. But it wasn't until I got pregnant that I took a dramatic step back and completely educated myself on all the ways. And I think that's common for a lot of women. You know, you like start being hyper vigilant of all the things you're consuming. And, um, you know, if you haven't already been taking care of yourself in some way, like maybe you start something new or you up the ante or you seek out, you know, different kinds of support and nourishment that maybe you hadn't as a single woman or as a not yet to be mom. So for me, like that was sort of an important seed of taking better care of myself. At that time, I was taking better care of the baby, but you know, there's spillover, of course. And and then you're taking better care of yourself because I want to have best quality breast milk. And then because I want to have, want my kids to eat healthy. So I'm modeling that. Um, not that I wasn't ever eating that healthy, but I just kept upping the ante on, on quality, I think, over the years. And then ultimately it came to a point, my kids were two and four or three and five that year that I decided to quit drinking. And that was like one of the best decisions I've made in general. And at the time I really made it because 
I couldn't show up as a mom like I wanted to. I was consistently in this loop of feeling like I was failing back to perfectionism as a mom. But now on a day-to-day basis, I make that decision for me. It certainly makes parenting for me way much easier to not have that in the mix. But yeah, I mean, I just, to me, it was the most transformative. I mean, I can talk about, you know, the actual birthing process, but just in general, motherhood has been the most transformative in a positive way thing that's happened to me. And a lot of it was, you know, they're little Buddhas. They're just, they hold up this, these mirrors to you and reflect like what you're giving them. And you're like, oh yeah, yeah, I can do better. (laughs) I love that. I love the image of little Buddhas. And your boys are young enough that I don't think they're eating you out of house and home just yet. So no, they definitely have adult. One of them has an adult diet. Yes, but adult uh, appetite. That's the word. Yeah, I will be a little Buddha with a big old appetite. So what I hear from what you shared, motherhood helped you still in this like nurturing giving mode. And maybe that was the first step about, you know, just trying to live your life in such a way that you're you're giving your your best to your children, almost to set them up with the best possible environment. And by doing so, that mirror reflected back on you also helped you grow, which is really cool. I'm going to put a pin in the whole oxygen mask on first because we hear that a lot. And I say that a lot too. When we get a little bit further in our conversation, I want to come back to that just around advice because we hear it all the time, but I, I often wonder if there was an emergency on a plane, would we do that? <laughs> so um, like sort of the concept of how, how do we do that? But I want to come back to what you just shared as far as drinking and stopping your alcohol consumption. I've stopped too, for the most part, several years ago. And I was a little naive to this whole, like maybe subculture or culture, uh, like women and wine. And where my wife is from, it's in Oregon, so it's the Willamette Valley, so home of great Pinot Noirs. And so we, we'd go, we'd go out of the vineyards. But I didn't really pick up on the fact that there was a whole wine culture, like moms using wine to cope, until I started doing the Peloton bike and a whole bunch of usernames were all about cycling, like working out with the end goal of having more wine or some concept thereof. (laughs) So I was like, holy cow, so we're working out in order to enjoy our wine, or just the wine was a huge coping mechanism. So I'd love to hear, what was your relationship like with alcohol? Because what I know of your story, it wasn't, say, problematic when you were like down and out for the count, like hung over all the time, but there was a unhealthiness to it. And I'm not sure if I have that right. So I was hoping you could expand upon this just to help me with my clarity and also share with the listeners. Yeah, happy to. So, I mean, I would define myself as a high functioning alcoholic, meaning, um, or there's newer terminology such as gray drinking, or, you know, to your point, I didn't have a DUI ever. I didn't get arrested. I didn't hide vodka in my closet. Like I wasn't that level of alcoholic, but it was from my perspective for decades, like an essential part of celebration, you know, commemorating something, having a deep conversation, connecting with other people, a good date, good dinner, 
you know, uh, an important holiday, like all of these things. And, and from this sort of elitist perspective, even that I grew up in a family culture where th- there was a respect for knowing a lot about wines and wine regions of the world. And so it was kind of like all dressed up in this, like, you know, a proper dinner is with wine vibe. And then it was just actually when I was coming to age that basically everything that was came out about big tobacco, losing the ability to directly advertise cigarettes. So all of those ad firms went to alcohol, big alcohol, and they quickly came to the conclusion that there was this massive market that was untapped, i.e. women, and started creating products and very covert ad campaigns like really powerful series on HBO or ABC where, you know, the power lawyer, she's got everything's power, but at the end of the night, you know, it's a bottle to herself. And this is next level feminism is drinking with the boys and like the boys. And, you know, I grew up with Mike's Hard Lemonade and, you know, cutesy wine bottles and like all these things that were directly marketed to young women and women. And, you know, I think we're still deeply, although I see a lot of improvements where also is a lot of counterculture of sober curious or, you know, how to live alcohol free. And it's also fun. And there's, you know, a massive explosion of non-alcoholic spirits, wines, like there is a shift in the positive direction, but I personally was existing in still this, this culture that I grew up with. And arguably I can still easily access. I still have a lot of the same friends of when I grew up. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm happy to dive down any of those rabbit holes, but I think for me, it was this, I I tried quote unquote mindful drinking for a year. I started working with a health coach and I was giving all of these other like radical improvements to my health and well-being. And the one thing that just didn't jive and, you know, back to my yogi days, this irony and I would go clubbing Thursday, Friday nights. And then I would do like back to back level three Ashtanga Saturday to sweat it all out. Like the poor souls that were beside me on their yoga mats, like smelling me sweating out two days of alcohol. So I tried this mindful drinking, which is high functioning alcoholic talk for trying to control a really bad habit that, you know, needs to be, or, you know, might need reconsideration. And, uh, it did help me bring a lot of awareness about like, when am I making a decision to have, cause you're clear on like how many glasses of wine you need before you hit buzzed versus like, okay, now I'm feeling, you know, like I might forget the conversation or, you know, just the different levels. I was highly aware. And so I tried controlling it for a year. And at the end, I don't think I even got to the end of that year. I just had much less, but still the odd morning where I wake up with the shame, blame, crappy feeling of, yeah, I don't want to do this. I mean, and another piece that I'll, I'll quickly drop here is a lot of this awareness came from, again, the gift my children gave me with back-to-back pregnancy, breastfeeding, pregnancy, breastfeeding. It was almost four years where I hardly had anything to drink in a very socially acceptable sense, right? So I had a lot of awareness coming back post, you know, producing babies and feeding them (laughs) on how exactly it hit me. You know, like I really just didn't enjoy hard alcohol anymore, uh, but I still, I, I just couldn't drink like I did before. A little over years, I kind of built it a little bit back up, but then I'm like, for what? You know, like the hangover as a parent, is just, oh, it's just not worth it. March 18th, uh, 2018 
was the last time I woke up with a hangover. And the day before I had had way too much Sauvignon Blanc beside the pool at a girlfriend's house. We have children. I had driven home with my kids in the car. And to me, that was just like crossing so many lines as a child of an alcoholic father that I swore I would never. And I just... I was just so disappointed in myself. And I, you know, I basically got fed up with my own excuses and, and made the decision. And at the time I made the decision to stop, honestly, I don't remember, but it was like, I, w- I was going to stop for three months or a year, regardless, I never went back. But I do say that because I, I think if you're someone in that situation, it's pretty much impossible without outside help or, you know, to say, well, with anything, not even with alcohol. It's like, I'm never going to eat sugar again. It's like, really? Like, never is a long time. <laughs> so wh- why don't you start by putting a, a window and then see how you feel. And if it really you feel that much better, then it might be easier to put a, a longer date on it. But I also feel like, you know, your sort of rebellious teenager side will always come in when you're saying like, I'm never. It's like, no, just give yourself the option. I've since been on a few, my husband and I last year, we went to Napa wine tours. He still stood drinks. And I, we also actually, we honeymooned in New Zealand doing wine tours. Like there's just so many things to enjoy about wineries that that doesn't mean you have to drink the wine. I mean, and so I've had a few incidences in the five years where, or we were in Greece at this incredible restaurant that was sitting on a winery. And, you know, I just smell it as if I'm going to taste it. And always the same reaction. It's like, no, I'm good. I can appreciate it from here. All right. Let's take a break. Take a full breath in and a slow releasing breath out. And relax the body as you soak up our conversation. Ah, I hope that felt good. Okay, now that we're a little bit more relaxed, can we be real? I think our morning routines, well, they've gotten a little out of control. You might not have time in the morning to meditate because you're busy doing other things like trying to get to work or getting the kids off to school. And this is where my app, Pause, Breathe, Reflect, comes in because I built it for busy people with a whole bunch of shorter practices. So if you don't have 10 minutes in the morning to meditate, cool beans. You're a human after all. But I bet you have five times throughout the day when you have two minutes to practice and let go of stress and bring mindfulness to your everyday moments. So today... Download Pause, Breathe, Reflect for free and begin to stress less, sleep better, and join a community of like-hearted humans rippling something worth rippling into the world. All right, let's go back to our conversation and celebrate the Kintsugi within us all. Wow, so that's all it takes is just like You breathe in the bouquet, as they would say. And then like, okay, I'm good. And then you can put it down. Yeah, because I immediately go in this cascade of the like slight hangover that come, like the slight headache maybe, or the like feeling 
not quite yourself. Like I used to value numbness. Mm. And for a long time now, I've switched that to valuing clarity over all else. Absolutely. And I love that. So when you made that decision, you woke up, you had the cotton mouth, the hangover, and then you set what I hear as a short-term goal, like three months, which I love, like baby steps in essence. What changed first for you? Because I think a lot of this you did on your own, right? So you didn't go to AA. Was it a conversation that you were having with yourself and how you wanted to see yourself? Or like, what did you lean on to make this change, even taking this very small step to begin? Yeah, well, I mean, I think on some level, I've been having the conversation with myself for a decade, you know, by having these experiences in numerous situations, you know, even pre-children oversharing at a dinner table or like telling someone, just consistently doing things that as a sober, compassionate human, I wouldn't do. So this, I think it was like this ongoing conversation in my head for a long time. And then the short-term goal was more like, well, you know, if I have a problem, this is going to be hard, but I don't have a problem. So I'm just like, not going to do it and see how I feel. So a, a little bit of a sort of a test you know, so that, that it was a Monday morning that Thursday, I was going to get on a plane with my family and go visit my family in Calgary and I already had like lunches set up with different pockets of girlfriends, all of these things that usually involve like a lot of wine. And I was just, I mean, I'd not made the decision already for so long being like, oh, but there's going to be this wedding or, oh, there, you know, this, so normally this would have been an excuse to postpone it even longer because it's not a good time. Well, there's never a good time, right? So that was one piece is sort of not listening to that thinking in my, in my head of like, no, we have to make the decision. It's never going to be a good time. Um, in fact, this is maybe like the best test that I'm going home to all these people. And so on the plane, I happened to listen to two podcasts. One of them was Gabor Mate. I believe it was the episode he was on, Tim Ferriss. And uh, he was talking about how essentially you have to, instead of having these dynamics of like your bad habit being outside of you and, and evil and you know, sort of like demonizing it, in order to really get it's more, no, no, you had the opposite. You have to bring it in closer and examine, you know, at some point this habit served you. It got you through something. It was a coping mechanism for something and at some point. And so even just with that shift, I was just more resolved in, in the flight there. And then I just said, no, thank you several times. And I was just, this other aspect, I think that so many people avoid making this choice is you imagine there's going to be all this social blowback and it's going to be really hard from that perspective. And you might lose friends and, you know, on some level I probably have over the years, but it's hard to say, like you, you lose friends for lots of reasons, especially when you leave the country. So it was almost maybe not shocking, but it was definitely revealing to me that it was almost like all of my friends and family knew before maybe that this is something that needed to happen. You know, I was, I was assuming they were going to make jokes that, oh, I must be pregnant or, you know, not like super harsh peer pressure, like when you're 20, but you know, something. Yeah. Like have a drink. Come on. We're having a good time. Like, what are you pregnant? Like, like stuff like that. Right. Exactly. Like, are you sure? Like there was no pressure. I said, no, thank you in each situation. And so then like anything, it becomes a practice of saying, no, thank you. 
and being conscious at that moment of like, why am I saying no thank you? All right, because I want to wake up at 5 a.m. tomorrow and meditate and, you know, feel great and be a better mom for my kids. And like, you know, I could give you a hundred reasons why I have clarity that that's how I want to wake up. So this is actually, I've learned since the pandemic and I got way more involved in having a community around sobriety. I kind of kind of did it on my own. One of my hardcore drinking buddies was my long-term bestie and she got sober. You know, she's 11 or 12 years sober now. So she was my guide or my support when I needed it. But to your point, I didn't do AA. I'm what they call like a spontaneous sobriety story. And that tends to be a lot of the women that I work with. It's like they've had this sort of on their radar that maybe their relationship with wine isn't serving them like it was in their 20s when, you know, you're using it to fit in and feel less socially awkward and and just go with the flow and meet people and you know, I was using it for all that. And, you know, it, it helped me get through a really difficult time. When I was 17, my father committed suicide. And, you know, it was like this, the tool that I had been modeled growing up is how you survive really hard, sad things is, is you drink, you know, in a fun social way and really nice restaurants with nice wine. <laughs> yeah, because it, it's more distinguished that way. And you could, you know, which wines to pair with which foods. and so. How could you be a drunk if you're doing it with class? Exactly. Yeah. So I love, thanks for sharing. I appreciate you sharing. And what I love about it, there are many things, but really getting to that trip back home, the courage that it took, you didn't necessarily call it out as courage, but going into an environment like that, I think any human would anticipate a little peer pressure, the judgment, you know, a little peer pressure, but almost like, well, we do this and now you're not doing this anymore. Like, are you now better than us? Like, whatever it may be, right? There's such a charge. It can be such a charge to feel that worry about belonging and being judged. And this is a group of people that I've known. And to your point, you know, friends stay friends for a lot of different reasons and we lose friends for a lot of different reasons. So it takes courage to step into, hey, this is part of my new identity, and I hope you all accept it. I'm accepting you as you are, and I hope you can accept me as how I am now. Um, But it still can be really scary. So I I love the courage element of all this. It's really cool. Thanks. And also just the mention of boundaries again, right? Another, Another reference to the importance of boundaries. And whether it's motherhood or lifestyle changes and our ability to say, no, thank you. You know, we we can put up our boundaries with a bit of grace and politeness. I also love that. Now, current day, you're a yogi, you're a chef, you're a mom, you're a partner, you're a lot like anybody. We're a lot of different things. But now you really do support other women in terms of wellness. And I want to talk about that because as a coach, Right. You consider yourself, that's a type, would you say you're a coach? Is that the noun you would give yourself? Yeah. Okay. So we got to put ourselves out there, right? You know, social media is like the advertising platform, whether it be Instagram or Facebook or name, whatever your favorite platform is. I'd love to hear about your relationship with putting yourself out there as, you know, a wellness coach, a guru expert. I'm not sure if you would use those terms. But you have to be out there. And I wonder if there was a there's a pull towards that perfectionism all again. Like, you know, because 
you have great days and you have great moments, but you imagine just as any human, you have some challenging days too, where you don't necessarily want to put yourself out there. And I think it's different for women than men. And I would love for you to just comment on your relationship when it comes to putting yourself out there in the way that you do and the work that you do. Is it natural? Is it easy? Is there pressure? Like, can you share more? Yeah. So, I mean, I think in my own evolution and journey with wellness, being both a coach, an advisor, an educator, and and all these things, in the beginning, I think when you're establishing yourself as a voice in a new space, you kind of cling to what you've most recently been taught. And my first experience with this was in the yoga world, but it happened again when I went into um, health and wellness, which was really to me like just a culmination of so many things that I'd been focused on for a long time. But just deepening my my understanding and ultimately creating my own philosophy around it, which is there is no one size fits all wellness. You know, I really encourage people to find wellness as a way of life and not feel like there's this series of check marks. And if they don't check them off, they're they're not meeting uh, some sort of perfection around health and wellness habits. So I think it's common that when we just first start something, it is handy and helpful to have more hard and fast rules maybe, or like a, a more consistent plan until you feel into it and you figure out like, I really like this part of the plan, but this part of the plan is like consistently interfering with my identity, my quality of life, or, you know, the fact that I'm a mother. And so just finding the threads that work for you. And this is what I've been doing over the years for my personal wellness journey, but also as as an entrepreneur. And I think that's where it forced me to sort of put myself out there more was because it sort of is about fitting out. You know, it's like the whole thing is kind of drawing attention to yourself. So you have to get comfortable with that element. And I learned personally over the years, the more I took better care of myself and essentially had my own self-leadership established and, and consistent over the years, the more grounded I felt and able to put myself out there and be less concerned or let it, you know, more personally affect me that not everyone loves what I'm putting out there. Not everyone identifies with it. Not everyone agrees with me. And that being, I mean, I think it's a practice, but it's also, you know, ultimately the the better care that you take of yourself on, you know, I focus on physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual wellness the more able you are to expand into uncomfortable situations sort of across the board. And one of them being like putting yourself out there or, or showing up, whether that's in a corporate space or on social media, which is kind of like a whole other conversation we could have. But yeah, I think when you're grounded in who you are based on an authentic exploration of that reality, it's so much easier to just go with the flow of of everything that's coming at you and not take it personally. I love that. Well, it's in the spirit of Kintsugi, right? So we all we all come into each moment with our scars, be it emotional, be it physical. And what I hear from you is this, this ownership of them, like who you are, the groundedness of who you are. So you can show up and just be who you are as opposed to trying to fit in. So fitting out versus fitting in, right? Like what that's what I heard. And I love 
the word authenticity is like often used nowadays, probably overused, and it's all like mangled by now. <laughs> but there is something really magical about watching you show up and then watching others who are really comfortable in their own skin. It's like, oh, yeah, that feels good. Like when you put out a message, it's like, oh, yeah, that resonates. That feels good. And I'm not necessarily your, like, as they would say in the entrepreneurial world, your ideal customer avatar, right? So, but it's still like when I see you putting your message and your goodness out there, it's like, oh yeah, Megan feels good in her skin. Like it feels, it feels right. So um, I appreciate you showing up and putting the ripple that you're putting into the world in the way that you do. It's really cool. Thanks, Michael. Very high compliment. Yeah. So I want to give you a chance to talk further about some of the specific ways you're helping sort of corporate women or just women in general. I think you have a new program that's about to be released and your book coming up in due time, whenever the book is due to come out, it's going to come out. But first things first is that you have a course around self-leadership and wellness. And I would love for you to be able to expand on what that is all about and some of the elements of it in terms of helping the women that you wish to help. Yeah. So, I mean, I support what I would call the modern woman, whether it's someone who's in entrepreneurship or in the corporate space with optimizing their wellness. Ultimately, so it comes back to this, having a sustainable source of energy, a skin deep confidence and, you know, a clarity. I think it all comes to when you feel better about yourself, making decisions is easier. It's easier to feel grounded and to maintain, communicate your boundaries and back to the consistently putting your own mask on on first whether it's in your family setting or the work again we like to say balance but i think finding a harmony between your your family life and and your career and your work life and now i'm partnering with a colleague who i adore her name's barbara san roman she's a professor at the university of chicago and she's an expert in leadership and we we're talking, I actually had her on my podcast and the more we got talking, I'm like, there's just so much synchronicity here. Just in order to be a more embodied, sustainable leader, particularly for women, it requires that you have sort of a non-negotiable self-care on all aspects of wellness. And again, finding, I always go back to less is more. We're all so overwhelmed. You know, it's not about doing more necessarily. It's being strategic with what wellness practices you personally like and resonate with and that work for you. But then also practicing being uh, better leaders as women in a safe space. So the program is eight experiential sessions where women have the opportunity to sort of like cross-pollinate this reality that there's a direct intersection between leadership, self-leadership and, and wellness and optimal wellness. So, you know, finding one's personal uh, leadership love language. And so not only finding it, but feeling into it. And then what are, what are the wellness things that can come in and support you in just embodying it more and more and, and feeling, you know, powerful, confident and safe in that version of leadership that or that version of you as a leader that you want to become. So that's what's coming up. And I'm very excited about it. I have been since the beginning of my coaching journey, just love supporting other women in finding sort of these connections in, for themselves, ultimately, so they feel better in their day to day, but also the longevity piece. Because uh, I think all of this comes back to, okay, do we want 
a rapid quick fix uh, or do we want, you know, gradual shifts that stick and ultimately improve your life in the day to day, but also improve uh, your longevity and not just your lifespan, but your health span and your ability to show up, be it in career, as a mom, in your life, in the way that you want to, in a really consistent manner that doesn't feel like work necessarily. You know, like I think there's this beautiful ebb and flow between discipline and things that support you and being consistent with that. But then also like, oh, okay, I'm on a business trip. Well, it doesn't make sense to force myself to do X, Y, Z. Now I'm going to do this other little thing that I know is going to make me feel better. Like, you know, taking off my shoes when I land and trying to wiggle my toes in some grass and like just taking some extra time to check in with the sunrise or the sunset. You know, there's so many things um, that we can do to improve our day to day, but then also just how we feel grounded in our in our lives and, and for women that are interested in developing their leadership and their leadership. That sounds terrific. What I hear in all that is really helping women embody some of the tools some of the ways of living, as opposed to treating them as transactional to-do lists, because we all have a massively long to-do list. You know, we If we listen to some folks, we have to do 15 things in the morning before we even open up our computer. And so it's easy to go through a morning routine in a very transactional way, or be really rigid with it, to your point, if you're traveling, why well, I do all these things, or I'm not, I'm not doing it well, because we've gamified everything. We got to win the game. Like, you know, everything has <laughs> some type of badge to give you. We're chasing all these mini merit badges wherever we go. So the whole concept of like, hey, let's do fewer things, but let's do them better. Let's embody them. What a great message at this time that we live in, because it feels like we're just doing way too much. And we don't have a clue as to what things that we do do are really moving the needle for us. So we're going to, okay, we're going to eat this way. We're going to do this. We're going to take a cold plunge. We're going to do meditation. We're going to exercise. We're going to, whatever the latest trend is, the next, you know, guru that gets on wherever. So we're like, oh, I got to do that. that. That's the shortcut. That's the hack. But some of the basics, right? The basics never go out of style. And what I hear you saying is like, hey, let's find your own particular recipe, your own way. Plan with thoughtfulness around that so you can really embody those. But if you have such a day, if you're traveling or the, the day gets a little out of control, just be graceful, right? So give yourself a break, like breathe a little bit. Like tomorrow is another day where you can begin again. That ongoing thin veil, but it's still this ongoing self-judgment that most of us carry around when we're not back to the perfectionism, right? Like there's no perfect wellness. Like wellness isn't a destination. It's this ongoing embodiment of how you want to live. And there's just so many things to your point, like the sort of the basics that I feel people are, are just out of touch. So I encourage everyone to take their agency back and just be more present, looping in your expertise and being more aware of like, how do you feel when you eat that thing or when you drink the glass of wine, like not only in the moment, but 15 minutes later, how do you wake up differently the next day? And not to say that it's an all or nothing. It's like, I'm aware that if I eat, you know, low quality gluten, I 
look a little puffy the next day. Is it worth it sometimes? Yes. Or was there nothing else to eat besides the plain food? Okay. Like it has to be forgiving and graceful. Otherwise it's kind of contradictory to the concept of holistic wellness, right? Absolutely. So if you are going to speak to someone who might be going through a rough patch, when we think of resilience, we think of we have fallen down and we need to get back up again. And so resilience can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. So I'd love to get your thoughts on how you see resilience. But if you were speaking to someone who might have fallen down and they're looking to get back up again, where would you start with them? Knowing that everyone has their own way, but are there a few basics you would offer up to someone to find a way to get back up again and become a little bit more resilient? Yeah, I mean, I think... I always start with the basics, like eat, sleep, move. Uh, I try not to use the word eat. I like the word nourish because I think it automatically draws your attention more into, again, picking things that are going to make me feel fueled, loved, good, energized, and nourished. And then, yeah, like sometimes the first thing I do with a client is just kind of tweak a few things so they start getting better quality, not even more sleep, just better quality sleep. Sometimes it involves like not drinking the nighttime tea so they don't have to go get up to go to the bathroom and interrupt their beautiful sleep cycle. And then move. And and I was just having a conversation this morning actually with a, a group of women that were saying like, oh, I'm just so over, you know, I know I should be exercising for all of these reasons. And like, I'm like, just pick a different word, you know? just move your body, like dance, you know, do something that inspires you. Like think when you were seven, what did you like to do? You know, maybe you like to roll in the grass or do cartwheels. There's so much you can get like a rebounder and just bounce as you listen to music or a podcast. It doesn't need to be so structured or unforgiving, you know, set yourself up to feel good about it and be excited to do this shift and just do such a small amount to start off with that there's a lot of the arguments that you have going on in your head that you don't have time or, you know, it's just not going to work out today. It's like you have, I know you say the same thing. You have two minutes. You have 10 minutes to go for a walk, you know, take a phone call on a walk. And then, you know, something I always say to women in particular who tend to have very strong stories in their heads about carbs and fruit, yet they eat the chocolate. (laughs) Just have a bowl of fruit in the afternoon at four o'clock instead of, you know, make that your your afternoon pick me up and I guarantee you're going to feel more alive and more energized and more in tune for so many reasons and just try and bring pleasure back into all those things enjoy like the delicious feeling of getting into your bed at the end of the day uh enjoy the fresh fruit enjoy some sort of movement maybe you do it with a friend uh, my husband and I do hit not every day during the pandemic we were very consistent because it was like keeping us sane. (laughs) But now if we hit two or three sessions a week together, you know, we each have our separate things that we like to do. I like to do my own yoga practice or whatever, but it feels good. I like lifting weights one to two, three times a week and, and, you know, we do it together. So it's like this back to connection and doing things in community, you know, finding, yeah, finding the warm fuzzy. I love that. What came up for me as you were sharing is really around this whole concept of like savor life, like take it in more slowly, really sense the deliciousness of life. 
Like, what does the fruit taste like? And it can go to mindful eating, but just what does it feel like to move your body? What does it feel like to dance? Like that, the savoring of life. And if we can build a little bit more of that in there that can influence mood and then the flywheel starts to crank and we can develop a new pattern, but like these bite-sized pieces. So I, I, lo- I love that advice. You know, like we have to get up. We get up slowly. I, no one really jumps up. You know, sometimes people do, but and they rush back into the game. But sometimes I think they rush back into the game without a thoughtfulness. So if we can connect with our breath and just rise slowly with a few steps to get us going and just savor life, like really taste it. I think it changes people's relationship with life. And I I love that you're doing that with for so many people. So again, I said it before, but I will say it again because it bears repeating. You're putting a good ripple into the world, Megan Swan. So keep rippling goodness. No, thanks, Michael. So how do people find you? Where should we send them to learn more about your spontaneous dance parties and holistic way of living and all the goodness that you're putting out there. So where's the best place to go? Yeah, well, you can check out my website, which is Megan Swan Wellness. Um, You can join my educational portal and community there if you wish. And I spend most time in terms of social media on LinkedIn, which is same uh, at Megan Swan Wellness, or you can find me on Instagram at Megan Swan Wellness. And I will add, check out Megan's podcast. She was nice enough to bring me on as a guest and I had a wonderful time being interviewed by Megan. So check out her podcast as well. Yes, thank you. Right, I do have a podcast. <laughs> yeah, so you can listen to it wherever you find your podcast. And what's the title of your podcast, Megan, for people? The podcast is called Wellness as a Way of Life. And uh, I forgot to mention, we'll have the link for the leadership intersecting with wellness program. I can share that in the show notes as well. Very cool. Yeah, we'll include all that goodness. So Megan, thank you for coming on to the Kintsugi podcast and sharing your stories of resilience. And we celebrate you and all your golden symbols of strength that you're putting out into the world. So thank you. Thanks, Michael. It's always an honor and a pleasure. Hey there, isn't Megan great? I just love her energy and I hope you do as well. I'm sure you wrote down a whole bunch of notes. Here are three things I took away from our conversation. One, the importance of a long, juicy kiss as our relationships, well, as they mature. No more of this transactional, pecky kind of kiss. I loved hearing about the new routine she has with her husband. Very romantic. Okay, here's number two, small steps. Whether you're starting a new habit or perhaps you've fallen down and need to become more resilient, small steps matter. Get that flywheel going, set yourself up for success. Small steps over time makes the difference. You don't have to do everything, just do the basics really well. I love this because it parallels the message of pause, breathe, reflect. Small practices consistently over time helps us embody a practice of mindfulness. So it doesn't become a transaction. 
or some game. It's a way of living as opposed to transactionally going through life. All right, here's number three. Boundaries, they matter. It's okay to say no. We can be polite. And when we put our own oxygen mask on first, it not only helps us, but it puts us in a better position to help those around us. So those are the three things I took away from this week's conversation with Megan. And I'll share all the different ways to connect with her in the show notes, which you can find at thekintsugipodcast.com. Now I have a favor to ask. If you've enjoyed the Kintsugi Podcast, please leave a review, send me a comment, ask a question, or share it with a friend or two or even three. All these small actions have a way of influencing the algorithm, which I don't understand. But what I do know, it helps us reach more people with stories of resilience so we can all celebrate our golden symbols of strength. It's something that we need right now in the world. So I hope you take a moment to make a small ripple that will lead to big change and help the next person find the Kintsugi podcast and be inspired by like-hearted humans with beautiful stories of resilience. So together, we can celebrate all our golden symbols of strength. You can also follow our podcast on Instagram. Make sure you spend a moment to download the Pause, Breathe, Reflect app and bring mindfulness to your everyday moments. And remember this, in life, you will face challenging moments. When they come, slow down, come back to your breath, and remember that you've got this and we've got you. You can do hard things and we can do hard things together. And don't forget to ripple something worth rippling. <laughs>